0: Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, bringing you more fascinating insights about the trends and stories unfolding beyond the glare of global media. In last week's podcast, we heard from Capital Economics Chief Emerging Markets Economist William Jackson about the prospects for 2023. One of the topics we touched on was the struggle that Sri Lanka has been facing over the past few years. The country has been beset by a range of woes, including terrorist attacks on Easter Sunday 2019, ironically very shortly after the Lonely Planet Guide declared Sri Lanka as the most attractive and appealing tourism destination in the world. The following year, the pandemic arrived, hammering what then remained of the country's formerly vibrant tourism industry. After that, we saw financial and political mismanagement under the now thoroughly discredited Rajapaksa regime, and finally the impact of Russia's attack on Ukraine, which prompted a surge in the prices of imported food and fuel that Sri Lanka relies on, helping to nudge the island nation to a point where it defaulted on its debt and belatedly rushed into the arms of the IMF in the hope of getting an economic rescue package. So pretty ugly, really. The macro numbers still look pretty bad, and the government said recently it expects the economy to contract again this year after suffering a near 10% decline in GDP last year. But what's it like on the ground in this island paradise? To find out, we're talking today with Rushir Desai, who is the co-fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital's Asia Frontier Fund, as well as with Abhijit Kukreja, who is Senior Vice President for Emerging Markets Equities Sales at brokerage auerbach Grayson. He's based in Colombo, Sri Lanka's capital, and was there during the height of the upheaval, or as he calls it, the uprising, that led to the collapse of the Rajpaksa government last summer. We're going to hear first from Rushier, who recently returned from a trip to Sri Lanka, and although I don't want to seal his thunder, he was pleasantly surprised by what he saw. Rushier, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, from what I've heard about Sri Lanka recently, and certainly from what we've reported on it at Frontier Markets News, I would imagine you encountered a pretty bleak situation in Sri Lanka. Is that, uh, is that accurate?
1: Well, not not fully accurate, actually. Of course, things a couple of months ago, especially I would say May and June, were quite intense in Sri Lanka with the you know public protests, shortage of fuel, uh, basic necessities like fuel, uh, food, and also electricity and of course the heavy protests against the previous president or the previous administration. So things seemed pretty intense at that point in time, but of course since then, uh, you know, things have kind of settled down. I'm not saying they're out of the woods as yet. Uh, so I was going after basically almost uh, three and a half years, The last I was there was in June 2019 and of course then because of the pandemic I couldn't visit. So I was going after more than three years, so I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect given what was going on on the ground. All the news that have been coming out from the country of the last couple of months, but on you know on touching down in the country in Colombo, which is the capital, things seemed pretty normal at the airport, and also you know getting around was not a was not a problem. I heard about the fuel the fuel shortage, uh, but getting a you know taxi from the airport, no no issue at all. You know moving around the city, no issue at all. And also you know uh, I was just besides meeting companies at the conference that I went for, I was just. Uh, you know, roaming around the streets and seeing what's going on on the ground, just to get a feel of things, how they are. It seemed pretty normal to me, people are out and about kept getting along with things because I think the situation has improved, I would say, significantly from uh, the bottom where they were in terms of the basic necessities in terms of fuel, food, and also power. So I think that's, that's the key point uh, which I'd like to make. That's improved significantly, so you don't have issues about... There's no long lines for, you know, filling up your car or your vehicle with, with fuel. Or no long lines for you know basic essentials and even i think the power cuts have reduced significantly i think only a few hours a day uh, and most you know offices and hotels have backup generators The situation is much better than what it was so i was uh quite pleas- i would not say pleasantly, pleasantly surprised but i was uh it was better than i expected when i've given all the news for that come out in the last couple of months so yeah uh things things are still there's still a lot of work to do for the country i mean they like i said they're not out of the woods as yet they need the funds from the IMF, they need to restructure the debt. They need to do a lot of reforms. So it's, it's going to be a long road to recovery for Sri Lanka. But clearly, uh, you know, they realize that they have to take some tough decisions. But on the ground, the situation is, uh, I would say, much better than what it was. And I also saw a lot of tourists, a lot, uh, quite a few tourists, both in Colombo and also down south at Velikama, where I visited, uh, you know, on the beach resorts.
0: Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, um I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you about was whether tourism... Appears to be recovering. Um, just before we get to that, though, it's it's great to hear that things are a lot better than you might expect. Um, certainly, the coverage that uh, that I've seen and you know that we've relayed to some of our readers was very much about the sort of lines for fuel, the shortages of basic essentials, um, really quite a dire situation, and obviously a very very unhappy population. But I, I, I it's great to hear that since the change of government that it seems like much of that has uh, been, been put under control. Um, was there a sense of, I mean, you talked about things feeling like they were back to normal. Was there a sense that people are at all anxious or did it feel really like people are, are just kind of getting on with stuff now?
1: I would say we've, in terms of the local population and the you know, who are kind of, professionals or just the general population, I think they've been through the worst part of the, of the crisis. Uh, especially, you know, like I said, in May and June. Uh, but I think so. Stepping back a bit, I think the biggest issue for the general population was not really them being against reforms or them being against decisions which should take the country forward. I think what had happened uh, since 2019, Sri Lanka has had a pretty tough time. You had the Easter Sunday attacks in April 2019, that was a setback for the tourism industry, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had. Uh, the pandemic started in you know March two thousand twenty, which obviously shut off the entire tourism industry. That was a big blow for the country, uh, because it brought in about five billion dollars a year of foreign exchange reserves, and that be very that would be, would have been very helpful in this environment for them, where they have to repay external debt and given the large amount of external debt that they have on their on their balance sheet. Uh, so you know you had two thousand nineteen and twenty, which was tough, two thousand twenty one as well. You know recovery in tourism didn't really happen until. Probably globally, I would say until probably beginning of uh, second half of last year or beginning of 2022, uh, and then you had the war in Ukraine, which really I think I think that was the final nail in the coffin for in general for the country and also for the population because you anyway had a tough time for about two years. Uh, you know you had this pressure about repaying your external debt, your foreign exchange reserves were going down, and then you had the war in Ukraine, which really shot up commodity prices, especially for oil and food. Sri Lanka imports, and they're heavily dependent on both oil and fuel imports. So, uh, you have uh, basically a double whammy. You have lower foreign exchange reserves, and you have high inflation uh, and rising commodity prices. So, that really squeezed them. And they had had no choice but to, you know, kind of restructure the debt or default on their debt. And the population, I guess, had had enough uh, with respect to how the whole situation has been managed with the economy. And, of course, I mean, if the common man can't even fill up his fuel tank, has to wait for three or four hours just to fill up his car, or has to wait a couple of hours just to get basic essentials. Obviously, that'll be very frustrating for any normal person. So I think that was yeah. what triggered all the protests. I don't think the protests were triggered because of uh, the tools in not doing well, or you know them being against reforms. I think it was just a build-up of everything. But when you just can't even get basic essentials, I think that was what led to the trigger and that led to the protests against the previous administration, of the previous president, uh, and that led to the change, yeah.
0: Yeah, that was what was so surprising for me. Um, I'd actually been to Sri Lanka in uh, March, 2019, um, immediately before the Easter Sunday terrorist attacks. and it just felt so, I mean, I love Sri Lanka, I've always loved it. Um, but it just felt so sort of prosperous and positive and optimistic. It had just been voted, I think, by Lonely Planet, like the the best travel destination, which is, you know, supremely ironic that then you have or not just ironic, but tragic, that you then have this awful terrorist attack, which obviously has a huge impact on, on tourism and then the pandemic, as well, to put that on top. I mean, it's it's hard to keep track of the number of whammies that, that Sri Lanka had to face. I don't think it was just a double, I think it was quite a quadruple or quintuple whammies that it faced. Um, so, one of the things I, I want to get on to the, um, the investment conference that you went to, but one of the things that I'm kind of intrigued about is um, the sort of influence of China and India there. Um, obviously, China was a huge factor in the Rajpaksa um, government, and they, you know, they were big friends of China and, and invited a lot of investment in from China, the government prior to the last Rajapakta government was was kind of pushing China out and bringing India in. Like, Is there a sense that that balance has all been worked out and that China and India know where they are in relation to Sri Lanka and that there is investment coming from either of them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, of course, in the previous Rajapaksa administration until 2015, I would say, yes, that, uh, the Lanka tilted to a lot towards China. So you had the Hamato Port uh, project, you had the uh, Colombo three project, you had a lot of highway projects being given uh, to Chinese firms. A lot of Chinese influence under 2015. Uh, since then, since the, the previous government plus the Rajapaksa government, which came into power in 2019, I think they realized that they had to balance uh, you know, both countries' interests. So I think we are past that. I don't think Sri Lanka is trying to favor one country or the other. They're trying to you know, uh, balance relations between both India and China. Uh, but I would say, especially since the crisis uh, that's happened in Sri Lanka from the beginning of 2022, uh, I would not say India has the upper hand, but they've really made more inroads into uh, Sri Lanka in terms of geopolitical influence, because the only country which has, or one of the few countries, which has really stood up and helped Sri Lanka in the last probably uh, 10 or 11 months has been India in terms of giving them oil, in the oil credit facility uh, helping them with their their food imports, helping them with refinancing some of their debt or, you know, delaying some of the repayments on their debt. So India has been very helpful in terms of stabilizing the economic situation in Sri Lanka at this point of crisis compared to other countries. So that's really given them, I would say, a very strong position in influence in, in the country at this point in time. And also from a, you know, various projects perspective, of course, like I mentioned, China had got uh, taken the initiative by investing in various highways and various port and, Infrastructure projects in Sri Lanka, but over the last year, I would say a couple of years, India also has kind of because of trying to uh, gain more influence. They've they're, they're one of the companies, the Adani Group, is developing a port in the port of Colombo. They're doing another container terminal over there, and India is getting more projects as well. So I would say now it's quite balanced out. India has also kind of raised their game and uh, tried to, you know, make get more influence into Sri Lanka. And even the Sri Lankan government, I think, has realized that it'll be a bit. Uh, not so uh, I would say logical on their part to just favor one country or the other, especially given that both are strong countries in Asia and India just borders Sri Lanka with the north. So I think they I think their policy going forward or in the last few years has been to balance both India and China.
0: Yeah. When um, you mentioned there was more tourism, um, was there was it clear where the tourists were coming from?
1: Post-pandemic, especially since uh, reopening of many countries in Asia, I would say India has been the leading driver for arrivals into Sri Lanka. Uh, so they are the number one uh, uh, country right. which has been uh, helping with arrivals in Sri Lanka. So that's, and I think going forward as well, India will be a key uh, target market for Sri Lanka from a tourism perspective as well because it's just a few hours flight from many Indian cities. Uh, so I, you know, China was only nine percent of arrivals even pre-pandemic. And China's only reopening now. So it's still a few months away from fully reopening uh, to, you know, for foreign travel. So I think India would really take the lead, uh, not just say this year, but I would say the next couple of years, you will see India basically leading arrivals for Sri Lanka tourism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, let's switch the focus over to the uh, investment conference that you were there for. Um, what was the focus of the conference and what was the general mood there among the attendees?
1: I mean, the, sh- the conference was more focused on Sri Lanka and Sri Lankan companies. Uh, mm-hmm. So, given the fact that it was very country-focused, uh, you don't have too many, I would say, foreign investors, uh, because uh, let's face it. I mean, Sri Lanka, given what's gone on, on in the country in the last couple of years, especially in the last couple of months, uh, it's a bit of off the radar for many uh, emerging market or frontier market investors at, at this point in time, because they, you know, they have other there are other countries which are doing. Well, not much. Well, they're doing much better in terms of macroeconomics, and they don't have that. They're not going through debt restructuring program. Uh, they have more stability from a political perspective as well. Sri Lanka, I would say, is a bit off the radar at this point in time. But there were a few foreign investors, including me. Uh, and I think the feeling I got is that we're pretty much at the bottom at this point in time. Uh, GDP growth will be significantly negative this year and probably even next year to some extent. Uh, but but they've taken some of the tough measures. Uh. For getting the IMF program in place, which is uh, which is still not in place, which is not fully finalized, but at least they've signed a staff level agreement. Uh, so they've raised electricity prices, they've raised fuel prices, uh, they're trying to privatize some of the state-owned companies. Uh, they raised they raised taxes uh, just in a couple of months ago in the budget. Uh, so they've taken some of the tough measures. Uh, and hopefully that'll, you know, that'll sustain going forward and they can, you know, slowly but surely Get themselves out of the situation that they're in at this point in time, Uh, but yeah. So from an investor participant perspective, I would say it was the majority of the investors who were present were more domestic investors because the domestic mutual from the domestic uh, institutions, Uh, and I would say from a foreign investor perspective, it was uh, not very heavily attended. But I would say it's good to get there early instead of you know when everyone wants to get there uh, then maybe you're at the peak but when there's, the, there's no foreign investor in the country or the, or the other conference then you know you're pretty much at the bottom so that's the way I look at it
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective um, although presumably no guarantee that it can't go further down before it starts coming back up again um, so one of the things I'm interested in though is even at the best of times Sri Lanka re- presents relatively limited opportunities for foreign investors, I think a lot of the companies are privately held and um, or in sort of family held um, the opportunities for foreign investors to get involved seemed fairly limited even when I was there in early 2019 before any of this happened do you do you see good opportunities there for foreign investors uh, assuming that the you know putting aside all the macro stuff for the time being assuming that picture does improve yeah. do you see opportunities and, and if so in what sort of sectors yeah
1: I mean, if you look at the opportunity basket in Sri Lanka, one should put it in perspective, Sri Lanka is a small small economy, right? So about $80 billion GDP and 20 million people. So when you compare opportunities in Sri Lanka, you can't really compare to, say, for example, Vietnam. Vietnam is a much bigger economy, uh, much larger population, much bigger stock market. So you can't, for example, compare Sri Lanka to, say, Vietnam. Maybe you can compare Sri Lanka to some other smaller market uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, I would say, for example, which has similar population, similar size of GDP, so I don't think you have such a large investment basket even in those countries. But for Sri Lanka, I would say, uh, from from a, for, from the given the size of their country and their population and, and all the metrics, I think there are some pretty decent opportunities over there because there's some very well run companies, pretty much across uh, the spectrum, especially in the consumer side, uh, on the leisure side, which are very well run. They've got good good management teams. Uh, so I don't, I don't see uh, that there are lack of opportunities. There are some decent opportunities over there, uh, and there's some very well run companies. So uh, the feeling I got was that many, most of these companies are very well run. I've been meeting them for the last. So I've been going to Sri Lanka since 2014. I've uh, been meeting them for the last six or seven years. Uh, they are all very strong brands, very well run. So bottom up, some very well run, very well run companies, and some very good opportunities at this point in time.
0: And are those opportunities in the public equity space or would this be private equity?
1: Right. So, I mean, we only, in, we only invest in listed equities. So, on the yes, on, on the listed equity side, yeah, there's some pretty good opportunities uh, at this point in time in Sri Lanka. So, if you look at even the uh, valuations for the index, the Colombo index trades at about four, about four times P ratio, uh, which is the all-time low it's ever been, I would say. Sri Lanka used to trade... Uh, between 12 and 13 times, even till a couple of years ago, and our trades at four times. So there's yeah, some good opportunities over there. Even the companies traded, all the blue chips trade at less than 10 times now, so you're getting a lot of good value. And uh, 20% plus ROE, so some good companies out there.
0: Mm, yeah, interesting. So when you were there, did you get a sense that there were any particular potholes that the country needed to avoid in the coming months and years?
1: Uh. I think we are past the worst in terms of all the issues that they had to face with, in terms of the lack of tourism, the oil price, the commodity price increase, uh, the politics. I think we are past that. I think what's more important now, and I will not say uh, roadblocks, but potholes, but I would say one needs to be patient because to get the IMF funds, they need to restructure their debt. So they need to come to an agreement between the sovereign bondholders, and of course, the bilateral debt holders like India and China and they need to come to an agreement uh, over that because before, unless that happens, the IMF will not disperse the funds. So we need that to happen. Uh, there are expectations that that will happen in January, basically next month, but I think that's a bit too optimistic in my view. I would say sometime in the first quarter or beginning of second quarter of 2023 is something more realistic. Uh, so that's what investors should, should probably watch out for that. Don't expect things to happen so soon.
0: That is well worth bearing in mind. Thank you, Rishir. Um, Turning now to Aobat Grayson's Abhijit Kukreja. Abhi, you're not in Sri Lanka right now. I believe you're in India, but you were there during the height of the protests last year. Before we get into the prospects for the future, tell us a little bit about your experiences last summer during the most intense months of protests that led up to the decline of the Rajpaksa government. Um,
2: I, I, i i feel like i think you have to divide it up between people or the has and the has not have nots like any part of the world right they have uh somehow managed to get what they need whether through one mean or the other but uh for the have nots it was a very difficult time uh, because you could not operate any sort of business because the fuel used. i personally okay so my personal experience um um uh, I had to stand in fuel queues over 48 hours um to just get yeah so the there was a huge black market for fuel it went up to 40 dollars a gallon on black market um so just to throw things uh the lines wrapped around the at one point the, okay this is this is to give you an image if you just take the core colombo the 10 uh you know districts 11 districts of colombo and you just The entire place was probably wrapped around uh, by parked cars, which were basically just lines for fuel. And work just came to a standstill completely for a lot of people. People have said, don't bother coming to the office because we know you don't have fuel. You know, Uh, a lot of people started bicycling. I, you know, basically, they're going everywhere on a bicycle, except for dropping my daughter to school and back. I was just on a cycle. and That also, I was, unless we uh, pooled, I was actually going to take her on a cycle too, so it came down to that to that level, the frustration level, um, and then we started seeing severe medical shortages for a lot of uh, acute uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know yeah, diseases, you know whether coronary or whatever it might be. So now it reached that point where obviously something was going to give. It was we I mean, were at some point of time it was going to get violent, and you know the the level of upsetness, even at the very, at the very same business level was that I, we knew it was going to reach a tipping point. Luckily, I don't think it was as extreme as we seen in a lot of countries where it goes on for months where, you know, there are moments of uprising here and there, which the government quelled uh, or the support government quelled over a period of time. If you were, if you were not within a one kilometer radius, it's not like your, uh, you know, your, your television. Always shows you that one street, or that, or those two streets, which where everything happens, or that one area where everything happens, and they show it over and over and over again, till they till they build it into your memory. But the rest of Colombo, where you know I was about two kilometers away from there, traffic was going on as normal. So you know, uh, just to put things in perspective, uh, of course everybody's glued to the television set and waiting for the announcements and what's going to happen. And, you know, the whole country needed a change very badly, very, very badly. Um, and we everybody wanted him to step down. And when is he going to step down? How is he going to run Run for his head? All of that stuff. Um, I think uh, th- as it's playing out now, uh, it's close to the best case scenario that you could have hoped for. This could have really gone in a very different manner. Um, so... For the situation, for them to, you know, take a step back and let this interim government come in, will, and the interim government is actually doing a decent job on tangling a very difficult situation, um, was the best case scenario. Uh, and the worst case scenario is them, you know, having the army bring on and continue this process and stay in power, which is, which is what you would expect almost from any such a situation anywhere in the world right from a from a frontier universe and in many other countries in the world maybe this thing would have just gotten way more violent if the population was more hot-headed as a country um but like you said kudos to a population even you know you know and the reputation is of is being very peaceful so i think it's just that nature that has brought us to a point where something that seemed completely hopeless and, you know, this could turn into a, you know, a, a big violent burn down scenario, it's turning into what could be a massive turnaround and there's very good examples of how it's turned around in a very short period of time. Um, and, you know, I think the current government has done a lot of good things to make that happen, but that path to getting here, I don't think was, hmm. you know, roses.
0: So, so, so let's look look ahead now um, you know we heard from uh, from Roucher earlier on that um, you know he was sort of pleasantly surprised at the sort of state of the country and um, you know he sees that there, there could be quite a strong rebound are you hearing a similar sort of story from investors or are you do you sense that that is the case that there could be quite a strong bounce in Sri Lanka and that it could be an opportunity for investors to to jump in at a good valuation at the moment?
2: yes we've been we've been telling clients to uh step back into sri lanka but we have to be cognizant about i think a few things um to you can't get you can't get your dollars out of sri lanka yet because they're still building out their reserves so they're not in a spot where they can allow uh uncontained capital inflows and outflows it's possible but in very small amounts so if you're an investor with any real appetite no uh, you it's going to be a while before you can take so you can put your money in for the moment, and park it, and I think you'll be fine. I think you can look back about a year, two years from now, and take your gains, and you should be you should be completely good, you know, as easily as doubling your money. Sure, very possible. Uh, but for now, if you were to thinking the next six months is possible, I want to take you know and the stocks double, and I want to take my money out. You might not be able to. So cognizant of that first of all. In terms of the valuations, it's extremely cheap. The banks are just absolutely extremely cheap. You know, on a macro front, which is what I think, you know, uh, Rashid was referring to apart from the political instability uh, and going back. And if you were, let me put it this way, Dan, if you lived under a rock and you went to Sri Lanka three years, four years back and you fell in love with the country. um, And uh, then you didn't know anything about this political rising, nothing. And you just wanted to take your family and came back to Sri Lanka tomorrow. Hmm. You would not know the difference. Like it would seem like he never left. It's exactly back to normal form. A tourist standpoint. Now, for a local, they're getting a huge sticker shock because they were so they were so used to massive subsidies. Uh, you know, because of uh, bad political uh, just to win votes, right? You know, the, the bad political moves. The subsidies were so wide. The corruption was so wide within the you know the CPC, the, center, the Salon the Ceylon Electricity Board. And the government and you know the diesel owners and all of that stuff that the the deficit became so large between what the consumer was paying and what they were paying to the you know uh, to the producers that they were just they were just burning up a hole that was impossible to fill and they were basically lying about it. It was it was straight up it was straight up lying like you know <laughs> the books were not showing what's off the books and what's on the books at all. So when the new government of charge anybody's jaw would drop. It was, it was, it's like walking to Enron, for example, like, what do you do with this? <coughs> so given that hand that they paid, uh, they were given, uh, I think, you know, you know, currently there's a few young ministers, the petroleum minister, Kanchina is doing a pretty good job. Uh, uh, I think, uh, I mean, Ranul, you know, as much as he's liked or disliked, uh, is done a pretty good job with what he's handled. So, uh, the, number, the main bloodline for this country to get back to a position where it can get to its creditors and start going back to the international markets to access their credit lines, they need to get back to two and a half to three million kind of tourists. It, it's going to have to come back, yes, because the exports are doing okay, no problem. Um, it's not doing great, but it's not doing bad. So, you know, they were making about $11 billion plus in tourism. And if you take their total debt, it can pretty much balance itself out if they get all their tourists back. So I think it's very important for this country to reach out to the world and let everybody know that Sri Lanka is back in business and to come visit them. And they need to do a better job of that, in all honesty, because a lot of people are still not aware. They know about what happened, but not what is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Just like Gruchira shop A lot of my friends in India and across the world, they're like, Hey, is everything okay then I'm Like, yeah, everything is completely fine, and they're just not doing a good job telling the world that. But in, se- in spite of that, at least from his closest neighbors, in India, which are a little bit more familiar with the place, they had 140,000 tourists in December. You know, so that's about 50% shy from their, you know, normal pre-COVID, uh, pre-Easter bombing kind of scenario. So they're 50% shy of their last month's mark. If they can maintain that and start doing a better job and get it up to about two, two and a half billion tourists again, I think this country is about two years away from you know being back to a very fiscally sound, reasonably fiscally sound, at least to be able to access the credit markets again um, and make the creditors a whole.
0: Do you, think, do you think it's going to be able to maintain stability in the meantime, though? That's quite a long time, two years to get back to the point where you start to really recover.
2: It, uh, I think it's the local uh, public has now uh, accepted uh, the inflationary levels and the situation because some of the tourists also coming back and at least you can do business. You can start increasing your prices, but you can at least do business versus you have to understand they came from a place where everything was just, there was, there was nothing. Like it just, like you know, you were shut down for months completely, like, you know, mothballed. So, you know, Sri Lankans are very good at at least looking at the brighter side of things uh, and they're looking at the brighter side of things now and they're seeing that these guys are trying to get back into uh, into the world again and tourists are starting to come back again. But that being said, in about six months, if you don't see further gradual improvement in the quality of life and prices coming down and, you know, uh, wages and jobs and economic growth coming back, then... I think we can have this conversation again in six months uh, if there's a transition that needs to be made. So, uh, you know, it's obviously a it's a moving situation, but I think, I think to turn, to turn, see, they had about $900 million in reserves earlier uh, when things were really bad. I mean, you were, that's, hmm. that's like peanuts. They are up to $6 billion now. There's at least something in their coffers so they can at least keep the public services going. Remember... This is a country where 80% of the entire country belongs to public services. So now they have to basically clean out their balance sheet because a lot of people they are not getting hired anymore, right? So now the private sector is going to have to actually pick up these college graduates and start putting them to work. And that's where the challenge is now for the next couple of years. Is, is the private sector and, and are, these, are these young people going to join the workforce in a non-governmental manner, in a productive manner? Or is it, is it going to be unproductive? That's going to be basically what decides, I think, what happens next.
0: Uh, and that feels like the right, cautiously optimistic note to wrap up this podcast. Abhijit and Rusheer, thank you for joining us. And thank you to both of our speakers, Rushir Desai from Asia Frontier Capital, and Abhijit Kulkreja from Albaq Grayson. Thanks to both of you for sharing your insights. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. You've been listening to the Frontier Markets News podcast from, you guessed it, Frontier Markets News. As always, you can get the latest summary of news from the Frontier and Growth Markets at frontiermarkets.co, and that is .co, not .com. You can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a meaty digest of the week's key news from small emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers from silvermansound.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and want us to be able to continue producing more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your followers, your family, anybody else you feel like it. If you have feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that is a wrap. Until next time.